I for one would have thought that most people want to forget about the COVID pandemic and the associated restrictions. That was until I saw some rather interesting polling this week from Maureen Cobbin that showed that a surprising number of us seem to want the restrictions back. You know what I mean, the no sitting down in parks, the essential face masks, the social distancing and the rest. Then there was the serious and tragic reality of living through this crisis, not being allowed to see friends or family, school shut, jobs vanishing, operations delayed, and of course isolation, illness and over 200,000 deaths. So perhaps the people who wanted to forget about this time most of all were the ministers and their advisers who devised the rules designed to keep us safe and keep the economy moving. But they've been forced to justify the decisions they took of late and the mistakes they might have made. Matt Hancock, Dominic Cummings, Rishi Sunak, Patrick Vallance, Chris Whitty and of course Boris Johnson have all headed down to Paddington, West London recently to give evidence to the Covid inquiry. So as the year draws to an end and the second module draws to a close, we're going to try and take stock of what might be one of the most significant public inquiries ever. What have we learnt? Who's given a good account of themselves and whose reputation has suffered? And what are the broader implications of this process? I'm Arnon Menon, Director of UK in a Changing Europe. I'm Paul Johnson, Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies. And I'm Hannah White, Director of the Institute for Government. And this is The Expert Factor. So Hannah, if we can start with you, can you just give us a bit of a basic scene setting about what this inquiry is? Yeah, sure. So this is our big opportunity as a country to learn lessons from what happened during covid the inquiry was set up by Boris Johnson under the Inquiries Act, so it's got a legislative basis. It has quite powerful powers in terms of being able to call for written evidence and records from the time. And we've seen the battles over WhatsApp and yeah. the people who do and don't have access to their WhatsApp messages and so on um, <laughs> playing out. I think Boris Johnson set it up with a very broad scope. Um, and so one of the things that the inquiry decided to do in order that it doesn't turn into one of these public inquiries that goes on for years and years and years and doesn't produce anything useful in time to actually have an impact on the way in which we run ourselves as a country is that it decided to operate through a series of modules they're being called. So as you said at the start, we're just nearing the end of the evidence taking for the uh, second module. We had the first module in the summer, which was on preparedness. Uh, that finished taking evidence. And while the evidence taking has been happening on the second module, which is on decision making, they've been writing the report on the first module. So it's, th this is how it's going to sort of work. We're expecting to see the report of the first module in the spring. Mm -hmm. Probably not the report of the second module until after the election significantly. And um, I think, you know, a lot of what we've been seeing in recent weeks and months has been evidenced by current and former members of the, of the government. And so in some ways, they'll, I think, be relieved that, that that's not going to report necessarily until after an election. But there's a series of other modules which will now be getting underway. There's one next on healthcare systems, the impact that COVID had on healthcare. There's then going to be one on vaccines and therapeutics, one on procurement, one on the care sector. And those are just the ones we know about for sure. There are a series of other sort of thematic modules which we expect to come. And the idea is the inquiry has said, uh, Lady Justice Hallett, who's chairing it, has said she'd like the whole thing wrapped up by 2027. 2027? I, seriously? I mean, that's short for a public inquiry. <laughs> that's ridiculous. That's about three times as long as the actual COVID pandemic. <laughs> Well, well think, think how long the uh, Iraq inquiries took. 
Well, I know. I mean, I say, why can't we do these things? I mean, do do other countries take five years over these sorts of inquiries? And interestingly, in, in your module, you didn't even have, did we take the right decisions? Or well, that's the what one would we're doing the right now. of decisions mean to take? Yeah, I mean, but but, but all, all I've seen is this kind of nonsense from Matt Hancock and Boris Johnson and you, um, it just going on about how bad everyone else in government was rather than you know, was it the right thing to do to lock down now what was what what could we and re- should we reasonably have known at the time and how should we behave next time and there are some interesting questions here but there's not five years of interesting questions surely well i think so you, there's a number of points there one is that the decision that boris johnson took was to set up as i said an inquiry with very broad scope which is trying to do the th- together the three things which you would normally think of as jobs for a public inquiry so so one is the lesson learning which you rightly point to is the thing that we actually need to make sure we do because there could well be another pandemic you know coming down the track at us that we we don't know we need to know what we should do differently next time and and many other countries have focused very much on that part of it and they have got their covid inquiries done and dusted um well done them many of them are then following up with further pieces of work because the other two things which a public inquiry can do are hold people to account and that is more what we've been seeing in the public evidence sessions of these these people coming back to justify the decisions that they personally took and the third aspect of it is the more sort of cathartic aspect of of as a country talking through what happened to us now arguably it's difficult for any single public inquiry to do those three things well and as you say there's been quite a lot of controversy about whether the current inquiry is getting the balance right Though it's fair to say, isn't it, that we've front-loaded the political pantomime. That is to say, the, the modules to come are not going to be like the modules, certainly this one we're having at the moment, the second one. I think that's right, and I think the inquiry team have probably thought quite carefully about the order in which to do things. I think the, the very fact of the availability of WhatsApp evidence has made the whole process seem much more anecdotal than any public inquiry we've watched in the past. Yeah. So instead of saying, you know, here, Minister, let's look at the paper you received at this meeting and how was this discussed and what did you draw on? The inquiry has been able to say, gosh, here's that WhatsApp message you sent to someone else during that meeting and, and, and what does that portray about your thinking or, or how things are working? And it has made the whole thing seem much more, uh, as I say, anecdotal rather than sort of serious evidence-based. But that doesn't mean that the inquiry doesn't have access to all those papers and background materials. And until we start to see their reports coming through, as I said, the first one will be in the spring, we don't know what they're going to be making of all that really rich, wider set of evidence they can draw on. Now, I would think, you know, we've got to reserve judgment on that. I'm surprised we haven't seen more evidence, more reference to to those other sources of evidence during evidence sessions so far. So... I mean, Paul, going back to your earlier complaint, I mean, insofar as it's possible at this early stage, have you watched this and come to any conclusions about how well we govern in a crisis? Well, I guess it to some extent just confirmed my view that this was really hard. And I've actually got an unusually large amount of sympathy, actually, for the people and the ministers making decisions at this point. I mean, I've, I've, I've sat and watched lots of people say it was outrageous that we didn't lock down two or three weeks earlier in, in spring 2020. Well, I think it's very easy with hindsight to say that. But at the time, it was an extraordinary thing. I mean, you remember, you cannot leave your house apart from, what was it, half an hour each day to go for exercise. You must stay at home. Now, we've never in the history of this country, I don't think, ever had an instruction like that. So I actually think it's rather good that we had, to some extent, ministers who were taking civil liberties and so on quite seriously on the one hand, 
and yes, I know we saw what we saw in Italy, but I, you know, would I have made a different decision? I don't know. I'm not at all sure that I would, and I'm not sure that a lot of people making those criticisms was particularly given that the scientific advice at the time was, despite what some of the scientists will say, pretty muddled. I mean, it is the case that um, chief advisor talked about going for a herd immunity early on so as you go through the um, as you go through the uh, the pandemic and we worried about the trade-offs between economics and social life and education and so on some of those I think didn't get enough attention I mean the impact on young people I'm really concerned about so uh, I think the main thing I take from it is it was incredibly hard we didn't necessarily have the um, best set of people taking the decisions that we could ever have had in history, but I'm not surprised they found it hard that it looks a bit chaotic in uh, in retrospect. And uh, in retrospect, people think, and possibly in prospect, you know, other people would have made different decisions. You can make strong cases for having made diff- different decisions. But given the scale of the trade-offs, the scale of the impact on people's lives, I think the thing I learned is it's really hard. And actually, we should remember how hard that was, how tough the decisions were, what the level of competing priorities were. And yes, we may then conclude that wrong decisions were made. And we may even conclude that given the evidence at the time, different decisions should have been made. But I don't think that's any reason for concluding that the decisions were made in bad faith, though it may be a reason for concluding that the institutions and the structures could have been better to help those decisions yeah i mean i have to say i for one find it incredibly difficult to watch what's going on without deploying the gift of hindsight which makes it very very hard i mean it's easy to say now well yes they should have acted earlier but we're absolutely right at the time they were announcing it it was just staggering wasn't it it was i remember watching that press conference and thinking what (laughs) (laughs) what are you doing so, yeah, it, it is hard. but And we'll come back to some of those trade-offs in a minute. But one of the things, and again, this is because Module 2 has been, Modules 1 and 2 have been what they are. One of the things that's come under the spotlight has been the culture of governing at the centre, Hannah. And, I mean, I don't suppose any of us would particularly want our private WhatsApps to be shared publicly ever. I certainly wouldn't. But, I mean, have we learned any lessons about the culture under Boris Johnson? I think we've seen that there was a fairly chaotic atmosphere at the centre. As Paul says, you know, this was an unprecedented situation. And particularly in the early stages, people were getting ill and you know, new people were being brought into the centre. And it's understandable that this was a situation that nobody had, had faced in the past. But I do think we've also seen evidence that the way in which the culture operated at the centre wasn't conducive to promoting good uh, decision making, that there was poor relations, shall we say, without citing any of the expletive laden stuff we've seen between some of the prime minister's advisers and some, some of the ministers and some of the civil servants. You know, some of the civil servants were afraid that Dominic Cummings was was angling to sack them, so they probably weren't operating at their best. We've seen allegations from from Helen McNamara that the women were sort of systematically excluded from decision making, and that she felt that that was problematic because it was really having an impact on the way in which policy decisions were made. That some sort of key considerations weren't taken into account. She talked about how she suddenly realised she was in a in a meeting and nobody in the room had ever been to a football match. So when they were talking about whether football matches should go ahead, there was a diverse enough group on a number of different axes to really 
be able to make the vast range of highly consequential decisions they were being asked to make at the time. So I think there was, a, it seems to me that we have seen from a number of different angles, a uh, consensus that the culture was problematic and not helpful. But credit where credit's due, Paul, the, the speed with which the Treasury rolled out the furlough scheme was pretty impressive, wasn't it? Yeah, I think the initial response from the Treasury was was really quite effective. It's huge speed. I remember the budget in March 2020, which was before we knew anything about the scale of COVID, and um, it was about £5 billion uh, or something of that order of magnitude announced to help. And I remember saying at the time, it remains to be seen whether that will be enough. Well, it didn't turn out to be quite enough. And we ended up with, I can't remember, two or £300 billion being spent. So up front, the rollout of the furlough, um, uh, the design of the furlough scheme, its rollout and some of the uh, support for the self-employed and for small businesses and so on, I think was pretty effective. I do think that throughout, and this is something that we said privately to the Treasury at the time, it was over generous. And I think the Chancellor at the time slightly reveled in the generosity. I mean, we were more generous than almost any other country right. in the scale both in terms of total amount spent and in terms of the amount of people's wages that were covered and the number of people who were furloughed and all those sorts of things. And there is some hindsight in, in, in what I'm saying, but that it was also something I think was reasonably clear at the time, and we may come on to future decisions, absolutely clear in my mind, and this was clear at the time, that furlough went on for much too long. I mean, it went on to September 2021, well after restrictions had been lifted. And I think that set the tone for some of the problems we've had since in terms of ridiculously tight labour market and some of the inflation that we've faced. So so some significant quibbles, but um, and those, those first few months, I think they did get a lot right and got things out very quickly. What I was concerned about all the way through was the failure to adapt and learn. And in terms of process, I have to say I was struck by the way in which employers and the unions were involved in those early discussions. It all felt quite corporatist, actually, in a very un-British sort of way. Yes, I mean, it was, um, it, it was done with a degree of uh, engagement with, with others um, and, uh, you know, and including um, organisations like ours. I mean, the Treasury reached out in a way that uh, they don't normally. And I think that was all uh, that was all positive, but I did get the sense of this being driven by a sort of almost a sort of desire to be seen as generous and riding yeah. to the rescue, as well as the absolute necessity for the design of the similar scheme we had. So again, easy to quibble with hindsight. I think in those first few months, really very impressive. Whereas actually. During the inquest, the Department of Health, Hannah, has come in for quite a lot of criticism from a number of different sources. How, how far do you think that that's merited? Well, that's right. I mean, Matt Hancock, in particular, as Secretary of State, has seems to have become the, the real whipping boy that everybody, if they want to find someone to, to criticise, seems to have gone for Matt Hancock. We saw him give evidence pretty recently, and he put up a sort of robust defence of his own approach. I, I think... What we saw was the model that we used was this sort of lead department model where if it's a pandemic on the risk register and a pandemic arrives, it's for DHSC, the Department of Health and Social Care, to lead the response. But I think this was an unprecedented crisis in the sense that, yes, it, it did need to be led from somewhere, but it wasn't just a health crisis, as we've just been talking about with Paul. You know, it was an economic crisis. It was a social crisis. It was really something that cut across the whole of government. And I think the lead department model struggled somewhat in that 
context. And I think what we haven't seen as much discussion of, but we're quite interested in here at the Institute for Government, is the role of the centre and the role of the Cabinet Office in particular, which has responsibility for the risk register and for, for resilience and these sorts of things in a cross-government way. And it doesn't seem clear that they were clear at the start of the pandemic that they had sort of tested the plans that were in place across government and that they had really taken on that responsibility for if we have a pandemic, are we really prepared? So you're right, there's been a lot of criticism of, of the health department, but there's also, I think, wider uh, responsibilities which also need to be looked at in terms of why we were or weren't as ready. And that is potentially what will come out of the preparedness module report, yeah. which we might see in the spring. And I imagine the, the proliferation of WhatsApp groups contributes to fragmentation, doesn't it? It makes it harder to be coordinated across government if all sorts of people are splintering off into their own private little chats about policy, which does seem to be what was happening. I think the difficulty with WhatsApp, in some ways, it's like it's a technology which has formalised something which always happens in government. People talk to each other yeah. and they talk to each other using whatever technology is available at the time. I think the difficulty with WhatsApp is it's this halfway house between having a chat in a corridor, in the back of a car, whatever it is, and a formal written uh, communication. And so people write stuff down. And so in some senses, you can feel like you're having a proper policy discussion with people. You don't necessarily know whether everyone's operating on the basis of the same information that they would be if they were in a room together. You haven't necessarily paid attention to, as you say, right, which WhatsApp group you're on and whether all the people who need to be in that group are actually there yeah. to have the discussion you're having. So actually really useful as a tool to enable people to sort of touch base ahead of a meeting, you know, what are you thinking, and have those discussions, which, as I say, will always happen. The difficulty is if in any cases it's sort of strayed over into some form of more decision making and that that wasn't necessarily either done on the basis of full information for everyone, everyone being there and records being kept of those decisions having been taken. Interesting. So let's come to the the big trade-off. I mean, the trade-off that everyone talks about, which is essentially in a simplified form, health versus the economy. Now, I know the Institute for Government have done a really nice report on the role of the Treasury, but it, it would be good to hear you both reflect on how well government handled that trade-off because it did seem to me on occasion that people just made the simple calculation that it's either health or the economy and actually in reality it was far far more complicated than that wasn't it i mean actually i would start by saying i don't think that was the biggest trade-off i think the biggest trade-off was health versus society education particularly i'm not sure there was a huge trade-off between health and the economy in reality in terms of the time at which you lock down. Um, we know that a lot of people were, even in early 2020, a lot of people, I mean, London in the week before lockdown was pretty dead. Yeah. And, and we saw that in Sweden as well. I mean, their economy suffered, even though they didn't have a formal lockdown, because yeah. people did stay at home. And in terms of when you lock down, actually, if you were going to lock down, it probably did make sense to lock down a bit earlier, because people were going to respond to the to the risk in any case. Um, and the remarkable thing is, I think, you know, uh, the outcome of all this was not what people expected. So I think if you look at what a lot of people were writing during COVID, including me, the concern was more that we'd end up with high levels of unemployment at the end. And we didn't. We ended up with no unemployment and high levels of inflation. So there's quite a lot of you know, errors about that yeah. trade-off and what that trade-off looked like or what that trade-off might look like. We didn't end up with roaring 20s either, as I recall. 
It doesn't look very <laughs> roaring at the moment, I think it would be fair to say. The stagnating 20s appear to be where we are. So, so, so there was a lot of, I think, poorly poorly formulated debate about health versus versus the economy there was clearly you know a huge cost to this i mean don't forget we borrowed whatever it was 300 billion additional that's part of the problem we've got at the moment because we're paying such a vast amount on debt interest on that debt so there was there was the cost and and the government sort of did as i said earlier spent more than almost any other government over that period and built up more debt so there was that there was clearly that trade-off but the other thing that's really interesting is just how first bit of 2020 we had a collapse in the economy as far more people stayed at home actually than was ever intended and i don't think the government intended people on building sites and so on to stay at home but they did right um, through that first period of furlough so we hit the economy very very hard harder than intended but if you look through the second period of furlough incredibly resilient economy in, in in many ways it bounced back pretty fast from that from that first period um the economy operated as i'm sure it was true of most of our organizations operated far better than expected under lockdown conditions so i think there's a lot of really interesting learnings from that and a lot of them a bit unexpected and a lot of them things were continuing to live with. And I don't know whether the inquiry is going to look at that. I don't know whether it's going to look at what we learn about how to manage an economy under these circumstances. I hope they do, because I think there's actually a lot of really interesting um, economic issues there. And, and Hannah, just reflecting on the work you've done, it sort of mirrors what Paul said, doesn't it, that it's, it's more messy and complicated than you might think. Yeah, and I think, and a, a colleague of mine, Ollie's written about this this week, but we agree with Paul that it didn't necessarily need to be about a trade-off between health and the economy. And actually, in some ways, it didn't need to be a zero-sum game. But the questioning in the inquiry did seem to perpetuate that idea that it was going to have to be one or the other. And one of the things that that we looked at in our report that we did on, on the Treasury and its role in, in COVID was the extent to which what was actually problematic was the lack of synthesis of the evidence coming through the SAGE process and the, the health evidence and the economic analysis, that that really only came together right at the top of the government in the sort of intro of Boris Johnson, yeah. that there wasn't enough bringing together those two bodies of evidence and using that to inform the debate at the centre. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? We had a SAGE, we didn't have an economic SAGE, so... We didn't have a series of experts feeding in about what the economics of this might look like, how best to manage the economy in a time of crisis. And I wonder whether if we had another pandemic, that might be something we think about doing. I think it was, it was wrong for the government always to give the sense that all of this was just following the science. Yeah. Because nothing can ever just follow the science. So many other things matter. And of course, in any case, political uh, judgments were layered on top of this. So I think there was, there was hiding behind the science going on. And there's no such thing as the science is well, always Well, indeed, there was always, that's always contested in, I, I, exactly. And I think they got more cover for doing that because they had just the scientific sage, as you were saying, and not other public, independent, public groups doing the same thing. But, and I say this as an economist, I really don't think it was just the economics that was missing. I really do think that the social... Um, side of this, the educational side of this, the the impact on women facing domestic abuse, the in, impact on the poorest children. I mean, these, I think, were probably the biggest 
negative long-run consequences of the lockdowns and of the policy that was being faced. And my impression from some of what we've heard in the inquiry so far and from elsewhere is that some of those things got very short shrift in the decision-making, and probably shorter shrift than the economics, where you have got the Treasury as the economics ministry always quite powerful in these things. And going back to something Hannah was saying earlier, the lack of diversity among the groups making the decisions will have resulted in some of those issues not getting front and centre in, in, in the discussion. So I think my sense is that um, there was a case for maybe not an economic sage, but a social science sage, or maybe an economic sage and a social sage, or, or something along those lines. But I think, again, one of the lessons I would learn from this is, yes, of course, the I'm not saying the science is, isn't important, but the science cannot be the only thing. The social effect and the economic effect have to be up there on an equal footing and then the politicians have to get out there and say, we are making a judgment based on the advice we're getting from the scientists, from the economists, from the social scientists, from here, there and everywhere. And I think, the, as I just again to repeat, I think the, the most uh, dangerous, but you can understand why they did it. But I think they need to be challenged on this, that we were following the science is something that we've just got to stop hearing that. Yeah. And. I think that the, the the key difference between having SAGE and, as you say, you know, the Treasury Economics Ministry, you know, huge expertise, but what we didn't have there was the transparency of the analysis Absolutely. that was being fed into the debate. So the, the important innovation with SAGE early in the pandemic was that they published all their minutes and so on, and that we, we couldn't see the economic, and as you say, uh, Paul, maybe it was non-existent, but the sort of more, more social science inputs into into the debate, that made it easier to maintain this narrative that they were following the science as though there was a single sort of source of advice that you could just pick up and take off the shelf. And, and I think there was also part of the reason for it is is the natural uncomfortableness they had with this idea that they were costing lives. You know, they didn't want to be talking about those trade-offs between health and economics in public because then they would immediately have got into headlines in the papers about, you know, how many deaths they were willing to countenance for the sake of the economy. And that is obviously a difficult place for politicians to be. Yeah, but as I say, I would really would challenge this narrative about it being about the economic trade-offs. I really yeah. think it was the social trade-offs that are more important. And those social and educational trade-offs are going to haunt us for years, aren't I they? Really, and we're long- seeing that already yeah. in terms of you know the number of you know, extraordinary numbers of children are being away from school for at least half a day a week, yeah. and, um, and 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 the, and the and the increased gap in the performance of poorer and better off children, and so on and so on. I mean, it really is very, very striking. And I know there's been some coverage of it, but, but remarkably little, I think, given that the, given the scale of social change there. Although we should also say some excellent work from the IFS on that really interesting report. Kind of you to say so. <laughs> so how confident are you that at the end of this process, we will have learned lessons and acted on any lessons we do learn? I mean, I think... As with many of these things, it's important not to just focus on the final report. And I think the very fact of the process yeah. uh, is already prompting reflection in government and you know, changes are already happening in the way that mm-hmm. things are done. What, what sort of changes? Well, I, I, you know, I, I think, for example, the Cabinet Office reflected on its role in sitting at the centre in how to ensure that government is resilient to different shocks. Now, I think that that is, is already something which is clear, 
there wasn't enough focus given to. And I think that ministers who've been in those government office roles, ministers at the centre are now much more cognizant of the of the fact that they have a responsibility there than just ministers sitting in line departments, for example. So I think we'll have to wait and see for the reports. We have to wait and see what, what approach they take um, and where they focus their their recommendations. I anticipate that the focus of the reports will be much more on the lesson learning and less on the kind of who should be held to account for what, because in, in some ways the evidence sessions in themselves have allowed people to draw their own conclusions on that front. And that, as I say, is part of the function of the inquiry. Whether you know we end up with a you know this not inconsiderable cost of running the inquiry, uh, whether yep. we get value for money um, out of it, I think is a, something we're going to have to wait and see. Though I am I am a little bit concerned, I have to say, about the prospect of certainly one and potentially two reports coming out in the year of an election, because I think that is just a recipe for it becoming a matter of political point scoring rather than genuine learning of lessons. I mean, do you share that concern, or is that just me being paranoid? Well, it's got to be, I mean, you know, just going back to the question of value for money, I mean, the, the amount that's being spent on this would keep the IFS going for a century, I think. It's, uh, you know, the, 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 the scale. Well, even of, with your salary? Even with my salary. Uh, two centuries. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so the, the scale of the resource, and that's, you know, in public inquiries, I mean, some of them have, have, have eaten up many hundreds of millions of pounds, um, which is you know, quite extraordinary considering the potential value. So, again, I think it's so important that it's focused on the big questions, including. Uh, the economic questions, which I didn't hear about in the modules that Anna described, but I don't know. I, I, I don't know, Anna, and whether I'm you. Know, is, is it better to delay all this into 2025, or is it better to put out as much as you can as quickly as possible? I have to say, I'm personally have a strong instinct for when you've got something, just put it out. It's the sort of uh, the Office of National Statistics view of the world. And if they've got the, um, if they've got the, uh, the migration statistics on the day of the referendum, well, tough. Um, <laughs> I mean, just to answer your question, Paul, the, the inquiries talked about future modules, but not sort of confirmed them yet. And they do include the sorts of things you're Good. talking about. Um, so the government's business and financial responses, health inequalities, the impact of COVID on those, education, children, young people, those sorts oh, of things. I mean, things. that's on top of the six you've already mentioned. Indeed, and that's why and, I think and, they and haven't... The and the first one will get published about a year after it started and the second one maybe two years after they started. This is not encouraging Well, me. the idea is they finish <laughs> taking evidence by 2026. So I think some of these modules will be quicker than others, but we shall see. Goodness me. Well, I think that's all we've got time for this week. I can't say it's been particularly pleasurable reliving those dark days of 2020 and 2021. And I certainly don't envy the task facing Baroness Haller and her team in putting these reports together. I suppose the one thing we can hope is that we do learn the lessons and we end up, God forbid, in the event of another pandemic, better prepared than we were last time. But for the moment, it's goodbye from me. Goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from them. <laughs> <laughs>